The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. It's uh, 2012. It's, uh, there's a little town in uh, Spain with a little church. And it has this, uh, this fresco, this painting on the wall that's beginning to um, dissolve and fade because of, uh, because of water damage. And, and because of that, it's becoming really hard to recognize the image of Jesus, right? So people are disappointed and sad and trying to figure out what are we going to do. Um, some of them wanted to, are just kind of like, well, we can live with it. We can deal with it as it is. And uh, a, an elderly lady in the congregation took it upon herself to repair it and do a bit of art restoration. And um, so the result is what has come to be called it's this, this, this. The result is what's, what some people have come to call the, the monkey Christ um, or potato Jesus. And uh, some people just like absolutely lost their minds over this because they, so this, this precious 19th century treasure painting by a master was, was, you know, turned into that. Some people were like, this is so cool. We've got this new pop culture icon and it's really, really great. But the, afterwards, the church decided we're just going to deal with this and live with this image of Jesus um, the way that it is, right? We're just going to deal. Um, so I, as I look at it, and I realize what happened, I, so in case you didn't know, I'm a bit of an artist, and looking at the image, I can see what she tried to do. She tried to begin with the outline of Jesus, right? She sort of created an outline or a boundary around the image of Jesus, and then she wanted to fill it in roughly close to what there was before. Except that as she, it looks like as she went, she got some of the proportions of the figures wrong, and so because she had this boundary that, that her Jesus needed to fit within, it looked uh, like that. You with me so far? So it might have actually worked. If she didn't, if she wasn't constrained by that shape, she wasn't constrained by that boundary she needed her Jesus to fit inside. And you might know where I'm going with this. If she weren't constrained by that boundary, she might have actually, it might not have turned out so terrible. But because she did, she needed her Jesus to fit inside that boundary. Um, it turned out weird. Um, you with me on that? So, I just think that is such a great picture of what's going on inside of a lot of us. You know? Um, we all have an image of Jesus. Uh, it's a concept of him. It's our understanding of who he is. It's sort of, uh, in some ways, it's like a, the, the foundation of our, of our theology. And, and I think that there are times, when we're honest, where we realize that our Jesus image is flawed. And it's chipped. And it's fading. There are times when that happens. There are also times when it's like, when, if you're honest, you, go, you look at your Jesus image. If you allow yourself to be really honest about it, you're like, there are some contradictions here. Like, there are more than just tensions, and there's more than just confusion going on. But as I think about my Jesus image, there are actual problems. And this Jesus isn't very Jesus-like, uh, after all. I think if we're honest, there are times when we go through that. So, what can you do? Uh, it seems to me you've got a few options. Uh, one is uh, deconstruction. Deconstruction is where you, you take it apart, and you sort of just decide for yourself what's worth keeping. And deconstruction is very popular right now. We'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, you might divide, uh, where you just sort of, you, you separate yourselves, you're going to start over with your own new one, because you can do it better on your own. Another way you might deal, deal with it is to simply deal. You might handle it just by dealing, because we know the flaws. 
within our, within our, our community, right? We, we know what those flaws are. Uh, we, we're not going to talk about them. We're going to surround ourselves with people who share the same Jesus image, more or less. Um, and and if they, because they think the same, we're not going to need to defend it. We're not going to need to explain it. Uh, we're not going to have to argue about it. Uh, besides, we, we don't have the right to just go around like revising our, our Jesus image, do we? Well, well, we'll come back to that. So 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul is going, he's writing to the church, and this church is a disaster. And he's telling them, I want to make clear for you the gospel that I preached to you, uh, which you received, and on which you've taken your stand. He goes on, verse 3. I passed on to you, uh, as most important, what I received. Some, some translations say, of first importance. Like, the things that I'm giving you, the things I'm about to tell you, these things are, like, central. These are of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And he goes on and he describes some of the people that Jesus uh, appeared to. One of the things that's going on in that passage that's really important for us to get at this point, particularly as we're going through the creed, is to go, there are lots of true things about Jesus. There are lots of beautiful, good, important things that we can know about Jesus and we can take a stand on. Not all of those are of first importance. Is that fair to say? Not all of those things are of first importance. Okay, those things are beautiful, they're good, they're true, but not all of them are of first importance. That's why we have the Apostles' Creed. That's why the first Christians, when they would gather for worship, they developed this, this habit of announcing in worship together, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. You might have heard that, or you might have heard me say that. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And that became, that's sort of like the, the, the bottom line, that's like the basement of, Christ, of the Christian faith. It's like the irreducible um, base uh, of, the, of the Christian faith. And today we're going to see that if you add things to that and say that they are of first importance, if you add a different boundary, if you redraw the boundary around Jesus, we're going to see that bad things happen and Jesus can become uh, distorted. So we're going through the Apostles' Creed. We've been, we have been for some time. Where we, when we last got together, we were talking about the incarnation of Jesus, how he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Uh, we ended where he suffered, died, and was buried. Um, and, and as we've been going along, we're talking about not just what the church believes, but how do we believe these things? What do we do with it? Like, how do we hold these things, and how do we treat people in light of, uh, in light of these things if they are true? And at the bottom of the screen today, as usual, there's a, a phone number uh, to which you are invited to text your questions if you have a, a question to clarify or to challenge or criticize or whatever. Or there's just you want to know even where I land on some of these things. You are welcome to to text your question in, and I will not uh, name you. These are just anonymous questions that I will do my best to answer uh, at the end, just before we say our our, our benediction together. Now. One of the things I think is really cool is that when we started this series, uh, I wasn't sure what we were going to do when we came to this segment of the creed where we talk about Jesus descended to the dead. I wasn't sure what we were going to do about that. Um, but we said early on that the, the Apostles' Creed is sort of like a fence. Remember that? And how the, 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 the creed is a fence that keeps in certain things that we want to include and it excludes certain things that we want to keep uh, out. 
right? You, you might also say that the Apostles' Creed gives us a bit of a boundary uh, around our Jesus image, okay? And that's, that's good. We, we all do that. Like a, a good boundary around Jesus, it frames your Jesus image. It can be beautiful and really, really helpful. But if we redraw that boundary, it can be, it can be harmful and our Jesus image can be ruined. And I think this is a really important lesson for us to reflect on today, especially because the ideas that we're going to cover today, that he descended to the dead, on the third day he rose again, uh, he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, will come again to judge the living and the dead. If we're going to disagree theologically, it's going to be on these things. If you're going to have divisions either between another Christian or one church from another church or denominations that disagree and split, it's probably going to be over a theological issue related to some of the stuff that we're covering. So we're, going to, we're just going to dive in and, and talk about these things. And I'm going to say some things that might sound a little different, a little bit outside your comfort zone. They might challenge your boundary a little bit. And I want you to know that that's okay. Like as we go, if you feel like your boundary is being pushed... Or if you feel like your boundary is being threatened, your boundary around your Jesus image, if that's being threatened, or you might also feel, you might go like, what's happened to Mike? Like, what, is, he, is he playing something here? Is there something going on? Or you might just feel like, um, man, I, I'm realizing that my Jesus image needs to change. And, and whatever it is, if that's if either of those reactions, just so you know, I'm totally okay with it. Okay? So, let's dive in. We're going to talk about now how he descended to the dead. What, do we, what does the Apostles' Creed mean when we say he descended to the dead? So, uh, just so you know, it's helpful to, to understand that the earliest forms of the Apostles' Creed would say either he descended into hell or he descended to the dead. And they use those terms interchangeably. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because the Bible isn't super clear on what happens right after death. Okay. That's, that's one reality. Another reality, though, is that the Bible wasn't complete at the time when the apostles and the, the church were beginning to circulate this creed and memorize it and repeat it. So we didn't have a complete Bible. Um, and that's just that's important to know. Still, does the Bible have anything to say about these things? Does it have anything to say about what might have happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? And I think, I think it does. So let's see a couple of verses here. For example, there are some who in the early church, they, when, when Jesus described how, he, you know, it's how you need to go and enter the strong man's house, steal his possessions, but you're not going to do that unless you first tie up the strong man and then you can plunder his house. When Jesus said that in Matthew 12, most of the early church understood that to mean that Jesus' strategy for defeating Satan was that he was going to go to his house, like death, the underworld, whatever, and you're going to defeat him. And you're going to rescue his prisoners. You're going to tie him up and, and rescue his prisoners. And that was Jesus' strategy. In Acts 2, the Apostle Peter preaches a sermon. Uh, he's quoted as saying that God raised up Jesus, ending the pains of, of death for Jesus, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. David says of him, of Jesus, My flesh will rest in hope because you will not abandon me in Hades. Hades, just you know, that's the name of uh, the Greek view of the underworld or the place where dead people go and await judgment. So Peter's, Peter's saying that of, he's saying of Jesus that you will, not, you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to, to see decay. Peter is saying when David said that, he was talking about Jesus. He was talking about something that happened after the cross. So then in Ephesians, 
Sorry about that. Then in Ephesians chapter 4, um, you've got the Apostle Paul. And he says that when Jesus ascended on high, he took the captives captives, he gave gifts to the people. What does is is he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? Um, the one who descended is also the one who ascended above uh, all the heavens to fill all things. I remember in seminary, um, our New Testament uh, um, hermeneutics prof, he made us all write a paper on this passage to try and figure out what's going on there. And um, I think, here's what I, I'll just tell you what I think is going on. I think, I think Paul's argument is we can't appreciate the heights to which Jesus has ascended if we don't also appreciate the depths to which he descended when he took the captives captives captive. That, that seems to be, in, in my view, what's, what's going on in this passage, but um, there's others. There is, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we, we worked through this over the summer, but we didn't focus on this question. Peter says, he talks about Jesus and says that he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, uh, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, um, who in former times didn't obey. Lots of questions and, and and, uh, and debate about what's going on in that, in that passage. I'll tell you what's not up for debate, though, is that in the original language, in the Greek, when it says that he made proclamation to the spirits in prison, made proclamation is the Greek for uh, evangelism in, in English. Evangelism. This is, he's good newsing the spirits in prison. Just as any of us would share the good news with anybody else, or the apostles good news to anybody else in the New Testament, Jesus good news the spirits in, in prison. And then in chapter 4, he goes on and he says this. Last one on this point. Chapter 4, verse 6. The gospel was proclaimed even to the dead. So that though they, meaning the dead, had been judged in the flesh, and as everyone's judged, they, the dead, might live as the Spirit, uh, might live in the Spirit as God does. Here it sounds like, uh, it sounds like maybe, the, the, it sounds like the dead heard uh, the gospel so that they might live spiritually. That's going, what's going on here. Um, you might have a, a, a modern version that says, those who are now dead. That is a total addition to the language. The original language has none of that in it. It simply says that the good news was, that, uh, that um, the gospel was proclaimed just simply to the dead. So you've got to figure out what do we do with this? That sounds weird, right? So we go, is it true? Is it true? And I want to, just, I want to pause here and, and go, I want to ask a, couple, a question here. Like, first of all, do we want it to be true? Like, do we hope that that's true? Like, wouldn't that be, would that be inconsistent with the character of Jesus? That between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, he actually went and brought hope and good news and opportunity to people who didn't have an opportunity before. Do we want, do, or do we want that not to be true? Like, no. That's, I'm sorry, that's just, that can't be. So just set that aside for a minute. I think, though, this is also, this is a good sort of correction, a good challenge about the, uh, the boundaries that we have around the gospel. Um, if you're like me, a fairly conservative uh, evangelical, you learned to stay away from ideas like this because they seem kind of Catholic, right? They seem kind of Catholic. They seem kind of medieval. And if you don't know, I was actually raised Catholic, and this is what I was, I, I, you know, I was taught this as a kid, and I, had, I didn't like it, I didn't believe it. But, but as conservative evangelicals, we're sort of taught, like, this can't be right, because it's just too medieval, too Catholic, and so we stay away from it. The Apostles' Creed says, he descended somewhere. He descended to the dead. We've got to figure out, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it can't mean. 
it can't mean that Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, and was just dead. That, is, that can't be what they meant. So we've got to we go, what do, they mean, what do they mean by this? So just so you know, the early church for the first 16 centuries believed that what happened after the cross is Jesus, in his incarnation, fully God, fully man, he went to the, went to the underworld, proclaimed uh, his good news to the spirits in prison, and because he was human, he could experience death. But because he was also God, he blew up death from the inside. And then when the Reformation happened and everybody had their Bible, we didn't need creeds so much anymore. And so we moved away from this stuff. But this is an idea. It's, it's, called, it's a doctrine called the harrowing of hell, if you want to look it up sometime. But artists have represented it this way. Check this out. So you can see, obviously, Jesus in the middle. So this, this, is, this painting is called... Um, it's the icon of the resurrection. It's, uh, it's really popular among Eastern Orthodox traditions, but just want to highlight a couple of things that are going on here in this painting. First of all, you see Jesus. He is out walking uh, sort of in this underworld area, okay? You see below him, you've got a couple of pieces of wood, like a couple of planks of wood. Those are the doors of the grave being blown off. And you've got uh, Jesus flanked on both sides by Old Testament patriarchs, by people who died before Jesus came. And then beneath him, um, in the, sort of in the water there, you've got these locks that are unlocked. You've got these pieces of chains that are, that are broken because the prisoners have been loosed. And then you've got Jesus taking two people by the wrists, an old man and an old woman. You know who that is? Adam and Eve. Representing that Jesus went to the grave, proclaiming, proclaiming good news to the spirits in prison and was bringing them out. And... Um, just so you know, so you go like, did, did this happen? Is this, is this true? I actually think it did. And so you got to go, what are you going to do with that? Am I a heretic? Is this a false teaching? Is this an example of heresy? If you think so, it just need to be reminded, this is in the Apostles' Creed. So again, this is a good challenge, a good reminder to take a look at where we've drawn our boundaries um, around Jesus. Okay, like we, we might have become uncomfortable with some things that we should have been comfortable with. We might have redrawn some boundaries in some unhelpful places. So that's what we mean, I think, by he descended to the dead. The rest of these are not nearly going to take as long as that. However, if we should look at what do we mean when, it's, when, when uh, the creed says he rose again on the third day. Simply, this is resurrection. This is uh, the climax of every gospel in the New Testament. This is, this is the event that changed everything. This is the event that took the apostles. So if the, if the apostles um, at the cross were driven into hiding, the resurrection drove them out into mission. It changed everything. We talk about this every Easter, so we're not going to say more about this here. But I'll just share this quote from N.T. Wright, which I just think is so awesome. He says, The resurrection completes the inauguration of God's kingdom. It's the decisive event demonstrating that God's kingdom really has been launched on earth as it is in heaven. The message of Easter is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you are now invited to belong to it. So as a boundary, this is pretty clear. Like in your Jesus image, he's risen. He's risen. Like that's not just a metaphor. It's not just symbolic. Like this happened. So Christians believe in the resurrection. That's what we mean. Now, what do we mean when we say that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father? We talk about this one less. Here's, here's one of the things. A couple of verses on this. One is from Mark. Mark says that, um, that Jesus, after speaking to them, 
Like the Lord Jesus, after speaking to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Romans 8. The Apostle says, he asks, um, who is it who is going to bring an accusation against God's elect? Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us, prays for us, goes before God on our behalf. And then this one from Hebrews. Hebrews 1, the author says that, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And uh, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there are lots of other verses that we could, we could uh, look at on this point. But here the creed just wants us to know that um, Jesus came out of the grave in a body. That body uh, is in heaven and reigning with the Father right now. That's pretty cool. That's pretty amazing. So what do we mean then when we, also, when we say he will come again to judge the living and the dead? Man, depends who you ask, right? But uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, the Lord will descend uh, from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise. Lots of verses that we could look at on this one. Matthew 25, this is where Jesus describes what it's going to be like when he comes back. He says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. Separating the nations one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then in Revelation 22, you've got Jesus describing himself, just sort of giving a picture of, of what this judgment is going to include. How he's going to sort of make his decision. He's going to, it says, um, look, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. But outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So, Lots of things we could add to that. There are lots of things we could add to that and make them of first importance. But what the creed says is of first importance is that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, his mission is judgment. A separation. A parting of, 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 of peoples, one from another. Um, and that's going to be over every person who has ever lived. The living and the dead. So these things seem pretty straightforward. Right? He, he, I mean, I mean, as far as the claims that they make and whether they, are, they seem to be in, matched up by, by Scripture. Um, and yet, like I said before, if you have a serious theological disagreement with another Christian, probably it's going to come down to one or more of the issues uh, covered in the creed, in this section. Like, for example, there's a lot of people who, who have taken an atonement view and made that of first importance. By that, we just mean, what is the main thing that happened on the cross? Some of us would say, you know, on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That Jesus punished, or that the Father punished Jesus for your sin. And some of us would say that that's the gospel. Some of us would be like, no, that's, that's not the gospel. That's not, that's not what happened. On the cross, that was the, the battleground between Jesus and Satan, where Satan was defeated. Some would say the cross is where a ransom was paid. And, and all of us, 
lots of people have those views and take those views very, very seriously. And depending on what point of church history we're talking about, any one of those was of, church, of first importance. But we also might have a boundary around the extent of the atonement. Like, depending on the kind of church you grew up in, or how you read the Bible, when, you know, when we, you think, like, when Jesus died, who did he have in mind? Who did he die for? Is he the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or is he the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the church, or of the church in Israel, or of the elect, or who, who did he die for? Some of us have a boundary around Jesus' return and, and the timing of it. And so, you know, lots of people are like, this could happen any day, yo. Like, I'm not even, I knew a girl who didn't want to go to university because she, uh, she was like, Jesus', is, Jesus return is so imminent. There's no point in, in going to school for four years. Um, now, this might not be a super pertinent question for you. Like, when is Jesus coming back? It, like, sort of pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, all that sort of stuff. Rapture questions might not be exactly where you live right now. But just so you know, uh, like, in our denomination, the AGC... Uh, you, like, you can't get a job as a pastor unless you have a certain view on these things. And that's not rare. Okay? Like, we have a boundary around this. You're, you might have a boundary around who is welcome because of the gospel. Like, you might... Um, I mean, the question, if the question is, who is it that gets to spend eternity with God? For some, it's those who, uh, who God saw would believe, and so he chose them, those people. Some people, it's, no, God just made a, a free decision about who he was going to choose. He elected them. Some, uh, it's God chose some and he rejected others because God's goal is to show how much he loves righteousness and how much he hates sin. That's a big boundary. That's a big boundary around Jesus. Another boundary is around God's judgment. What do we mean? What do we actually mean when we talk about hell? Some of us think hell is a place of eternal, like everlasting, conscious torment and torture. Okay? Some of us, some of us hold, hold that view. Some of us think hell is eventually going to become obsolete. That eventually it's going to be just God and his people. Some people think hell is a, is a metaphor. It's a it's symbolic language and that nobody actually ends up there. Um, but that in the end, God is ultimately going to redeem everybody. So just so you know, I'm not defending any of these views and saying that which, which is true. I'm also not saying which ones that uh, I reject. What I'm saying, though, is that um, the people who share these diverse views and have these diverse boundaries, they are still Christians. They're part of the family. And we can disagree on, on these things. And I know that we think that we believe that. Right? I think we... I know that... Probably we think we believe that they're, they're Christians and they're safe and we don't need to be afraid of them. I just wonder, though, if it were up to us and it were up to us to redraw the boundary around Jesus, whether those people might be excluded. And, and if it is, I just think, like, that's actually not okay. It's not okay. If, if, we would, if we're inclined to do that, our image of Jesus is actually flawed. Let me give you an example of this. Because a couple of weeks ago, there's this big Christian conference down in the U.S., and there's this really prominent, famous male uh, teacher. So I'm not going to name him because you know who he is, and he's a rock star. 
uh, among evangelical circles. But he's in a room where he's you know, surrounded by hundreds, maybe thousands of, of adoring fans. And he's on the platform. And uh, this conference is being streamed uh, to the world. And the MC is on the platform with him and asking him questions, just rapid fire, like, give me a two-word answer to this question. So two words, tell me, what do you think of, um, what, what are two words you would say to Beth Moore? So if you don't know who Beth Moore is, she's, a, she's a, a Bible teacher and a preacher who happens to be a woman as well. Okay? So this man, this teacher's response on the platform, his answer to that question was, go home. And the response among the crowd was just this uproarious laughter, like laughter and hooting and hollering and cheering and just sort of backslapping as though like their team had just won a football game. That's what it sounded like. And as this teacher, as this, this man explained, he said, um, uh, Beth Moore is a false teacher because she teaches the Bible, she teaches the gospel in uh, a mixed audience of men and women. That makes her a false teacher. Now, just so you know, full disclosure, I'm actually somebody who believes that God makes a gender-based distinction of roles and trying to figure out what that looks like and how we live that out. I also know a lot of intelligent, godly people who disagree with me on this point. Okay? Um, But for this group, gender roles became sort of a boundary around Jesus. It became like first importance, and it distorted their Jesus image and, and, and caused it to become a mess. Because in their Jesus image, here's what this means. In their Jesus image, they have an image of Jesus where when a group of guys publicly slanders a sister who isn't in the room to defend herself, Jesus is okay with that. But when you've got a woman who teaches a mixed crowd of men and women the gospel, that's too much. Like, we can't tolerate that. And I'm just like, really? Like, is that what we're saying? Listen, I actually believe that that was evil. I think that that was evil. That is not okay. And here's why I'm saying this. Because a few years ago, I would have been in that crowd too. And I would have been one of them people just cheering and hooting and hollering along with them. I'm just as, 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 I was just as susceptible to that sort of group thing. That sort of like uh, echo chamber mentality. Um, where we take things that are sort of secondary or, or tertiary and we make them of first importance. And, and, and just, I mean, over, the, over time, as I, what I've been going through and what I think some of us are going through is just realizing, like, as I look at my Jesus view, there are some flaws. There are some contradictions. There's some problems. And I, and I go like, man, that, that can't be right. Like, that's just, that doesn't resemble Jesus. My, my Jesus image actually doesn't look very much like Jesus after all. And i got to figure out what am I going to do with that. So what do you do? What do we do when we realize that, when we're honest, that our Jesus image doesn't look very much like Jesus? Well, one of the options is you can deconstruct. And, and, and this is what happens when... Now, deconstruction, just so you know, for a lot of people who are going through this process of deconstruction, deconstruction tends to assume that the framework is bad, that it's based on power and privilege and and greed, and and so we have to take take the painting off the frame, and we have to build a new one, and that's really hard to do without destroying it. Another option is is, uh, to divide. 
This is where we separate and we're, we decide that we can, uh, we can do a better job on our own. And just so you know, this seems to have been the, the method of choice for Protestants for quite a long time. There's, I mean, that's, why, that's where Protestant comes from, right? The word protest is right in our name. Check this out. Here's our family tree. So we're, this is current as of 1949. We're not even on this chart because we, uh, as a church, we are within a, a movement or a denomination called the Associated Gospel Churches of Canada, which is a split uh, about 100 years ago from the Salvation Army, which is a split about 100 years before that from the Methodists in the UK, um, which aren't even on, that, on, the, on the chart, but they're sort of just a little bit to the left. There you see the U.S. Methodist Church there. So, all of that is to say, what tends to happen when we separate, when we divide, is we take a lot of the baggage and the problems uh, and attitudes that we brought with us uh, that were a problem in the first place. But another response might be simply to deal. And I actually think this is just as important, or just as, just as dangerous, and it's important to talk about. We just deal with it. This is where you accept it, and you rationalize it, and you redraw the boundary around Jesus. Um, now, I'm not saying that we should never have questions. I'm not saying that, we, that, it's wrong, that it's bad if you've got questions or doubts about your faith. I think it's one thing to have uncertainty. It's another thing to be certain that the, the Jesus image you've got actually doesn't seem to match Jesus. It's, 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 it's okay to have questions. It's not okay to know that your answers to, the, the, to, to questions are, are just bad. That's not okay. And so if you deal, what happens is you're just sort of hoping that nobody asks us these questions. Do you know what I'm talking about? I, I, I bet that you do. I bet, I, I mean, how many people, think about like a, a loved one, like a, a friend, family uh, member, uh, a neighbor, a coworker who you just love and they're not a follower of Jesus right now. How many of you can think of a question you pray to God they never ask you? In the midst of conversation, you're hanging out, you're talking maybe about the intersection of Christianity and culture, who Jesus is. How many of you can think of a question you just hope that they don't ask you because it'd be too awkward? Yeah, lots of nodding heads, lots of hands raised. Um, Now that might be because we don't have a good explanation and we don't know how to articulate the answer very well. And that's totally okay. I totally get that. But it might be, deep down, we feel that the answer that we've learned can't be right. We're like that, like, that can't be it. That's just not Jesus. Except if you ask around. If we ask around within our, the community and we challenge it, it seems like it's like well, there's going to be a cost. So we deal. So what else is there? Let me propose an alternative. And then we're going to follow this, this analogy of, 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 uh, of art. And I, I, it's what we would call art restoration. I encourage you to pursue a process of art restoration. This is, what happens is like this. You're going to do with your Jesus image the same thing that you would do with a painting that needed restoring. And you're going to start by facing the flaw and acknowledging it and saying, like, that's a problem. It's not, that's, that's a flaw. This doesn't belong. I'm not crazy. And the original doesn't look like that. It wasn't meant to look like that, and it never was. And then you're going to get to work preparing the, preparing the canvas, preparing the surface. You don't rip it off the frame. Okay? You're not going to junk it. You're not going to start over. You prepare the canvas by carefully like wiping it down 
and you're going to carefully compare the colors within the art. And you're going to make sure you've found the right technique so that when you're ready to retouch it, you're ready to go. And you're going to talk to people who've done this before and who've gone through the same thing as you prepare to do your, your art restoration. And then you're going to carefully repair it. Then you're going to repaint that section. You can do that. You're going to repaint that section. And it's not going to be a perfect match. All right? It's not going to look exactly like the original, but it's going to be a lot closer to the original than what you previously had. And it's going to be something that you can enjoy and something that you love and something that's yours. It's going to be a Jesus image that you appreciate because you know it's closer to who Jesus is and you saw, you, you saw him work through you in restoring it to, to, where it's, to what it's supposed to be. So I'm going to encourage you not to be afraid to do some art restoration on a Jesus image that is flawed. Okay? You're allowed to learn. You're allowed to learn. You're allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to move your boundaries and change where your fences are. You're allowed to do that if it's going to bring you back, if it's going to restore a Jesus image that is more Jesus-like. You're allowed to do that. You actually have to do that. I think I would go I would say we must do this. Your health depends on it. How are you going to worship a Jesus that you, that you know has serious flaws? How are you going to worship a Jesus when you know deep down he's not very Jesus-like? That, you, that you're, there are so many gaps and problems and, and flaws in the image. You can't worship that Jesus. You can't pray to that Jesus. You're not going to go out on mission and share good news about that Jesus with people. We must do this. We must do this art restoration. I think it also, the community depends on it. I think I'll say, say here is that my experience of Christian community is I used to think that unity is what happens when we are aligned on pretty much every issue. And so my job as pastor is to have the perfect Jesus image and to share that with you. My job is to take the perfect Jesus image and put that before you, and you're going to pattern your Jesus image after mine. And here's what I know now. Here's what I'm learning. It's that I, I can't do that. I can't give you that. Because I don't have it. I don't have that myself, so I can't give it to you. And if I were to pretend, I would be failing you. I would be failing the Lord. I'd be failing myself. I can't do that. I, have, I don't have a perfect Jesus image. He does. But I don't have it. I need you. We need each other. I think a better way is that is what happens when you bring your Jesus image that you're restoring, you're working on, you're bringing it more and more and restoring it to the, the original making it more, look more Jesus-like. You're going to bring yours, and I'm going to bring mine. And as we pool our Jesus images, that means like the church becomes uh, an art gallery. And we've got our Jesus images that where we, we interact, and each of us is learning and growing and, and changing our minds, and, and we're seeing more and more uh, of Jesus. I just love this. I think, I think in, in some ways, discipleship uh, is, a, is a picture of uh, discipleship is a form of art restoration. Or maybe art restoration is a, is a form of, of, of understanding discipleship and what we're, what we're doing uh, and growing together. I need you to know I dread the idea of being a church that gathers around a Jesus image that we all know is flawed and we can't talk about it or we won't talk about it. I dread that image. Like, Forget it. Forget that. I'm, if, if that's what you want, 
this is not the right community. We, we've, we've messed up. I dread that idea. I also dread the idea that um, by some of the boundaries we uh, might make down the road or some of the boundaries we've created today, I, I, I dread that we might be saying no to some people to whom the Lord has already said yes. But I'm intrigued by this idea. I'm intrigued by, like, what if we let the creed be the boundary? The creed is informed by Scripture, and the creed re- reflects Scripture. I'm, I'm intrigued, though. What if we let the creed set the boundary around our Jesus image, and each of us is, is doing our own sort of art restoration, and, and lots of kind of people can belong within that? We can find a, a you know, then we find a, a better picture of Jesus, a better Jesus image that's closer to the original, Better, it's, it's certainly closer than, than what uh, we had before that. Um, I actually dream that for us. That's what I want for us. I dream, I pray that for us. Thank you for listening.